Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Monday, November 6th, 2017, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. It was originally introduced on stage by Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO. In the lecture, author Russell Shorto discusses his book, Revolution Song, A Story of American Freedom. And now, enjoy the podcast. Thank you very much, Louise. Um, Thank you all for being here. And uh, I want to thank the New York Historical Society for hosting this event. And uh, I want to thank Louise again for supporting my work through the years and really for being a wonderful custodian of New York history. Those of you who uh, aren't so familiar with this building, it didn't always look like this. This transformation began about 12 years ago, and I think Louise uh, started here, took over here, about 12 years ago. And she, New York is a place that likes to pave over its past, and she uh, has made this a place for the city to be proud of. So thank you, Louise. <clears throat> I am also, uh, this is um, the launch event for the book, which technically comes out tomorrow. So... Um, I want to kind of quickly roll through some opening credits and and give out some other thanks. I want to thank the people at W.W. Norton, my publishers. Uh, In particular, Maria Guarnaschelli, Julia Reedhead, Drake McFeely, Louise Brockett, John Glussman, Rachel Salzman, and Nathaniel Dennett. I want to thank Ann Edelstein, my agent and friend, who has been with me low these many years and who really outdid herself on this. I want to thank my family. Uh, particularly my daughter, Anna, who is, I think, here somewhere, who um, years ago I had this idea and I kind of floated it by her before I'd ever put a word down on paper. And, you know, it's a dangerous thing to do to, to uh, air an idea too soon because it's like a sapling and the slightest breeze can kill it. But she was very enthusiastic about it when I talked about writing, you're telling the story of, the, uh, of America's founding by... Uh, virtue of the lives of people from different walks of life. And uh, through the cracks, so to speak, you would get this larger story. And uh, her enthusiasm was enough to kind of move me to the next stage. I also want to thank my wife, Pamela, for um, putting up with all of this, for um, reading it over and over again, for offering wise uh, suggestions, and for putting up with me. (laughs) <laughs> Those of you who know, know me are applauding because they know what she wanted. Um, all right, I want to begin with a confession. The, the American Revolution never did it for me. It never moved me. It, people who are interested in the past are often interested in one or another era, and it's because it comes alive for them for whatever reason. The, um, the great Dutch historian... Johann Housinger has a sentence at the beginning of a collection of essays that he wrote about the Dutch Golden Age that always stays with me. He said, we might as well begin with what is the wellspring of all historical inquiry, 
our perpetual astonishment that the past was once a living reality. And, and I think that is what has to work for you, that has to engage you if you're, if you're to be focused on an era of history. Um, and if the American Revolutionary Era didn't for me, the century before, the 17th century, did. Starting about 17 or 18 years ago, I became focused on uh, Europe in the 1600s, in particular the intellectual world of uh, Descartes and Spinoza, and that led me uh, eventually to write the book The Island at the Center of the World about the Dutch founding of Manhattan, uh, New Amsterdam on Manhattan, and this colony that stretched over this uh, part of the, uh, of the seaboard. What uh, appealed to me, what struck me at that time, was the way ordinary Europeans were focused on themselves in a new kind of way. The, the concept of the individual changed. You might say it started with people looking into telescopes and microscopes and coming up with a new notion of what knowledge is based on because what they saw didn't, conf- didn't comport with uh, received wisdom from the church or from the king. And so uh, Descartes is called the, modern, uh, the, the uh, founder of modern philosophy because he put this together into a notion, and that notion was that knowledge derived not from received wisdom, but from what he called the mind and its good sense. So that every individual had this thing inside himself or herself called reason. And this was connected in some mysterious way to nature, to the universe. And that meant that this connection allowed people of, all, of any background to be able to experience this, this, this uh, access to knowledge. And based on that, people very quickly, uh, Spinoza in particular, uh, began to formulate notions such as, if that is the case, then that must mean that all people are equally valuable. And from there, as early as the 1640s, people were saying things like, that means that girls ought to have just as much right to education as boys. People began that early uh, plotting little utopian communities in which people would have one vote. Spinoza uh, posited in his works that the only legitimate form of government was one in which every individual had uh, equal say in the government. Precisely because of that, his his works were banned in Europe, and uh, probably because of that, they spread like wildfire. Uh, and so he kind of seeded the, the wider enlightenment of the, of the uh, coming century. So as I moved through the decades from the period I had focused on, from the 1630s and 40s and 50s, through the later 1600s and into the 1700s, I saw from that perspective, coming at it from the other side, the leaders of what would be this American rebellion taking what was really a very broad movement that had been building for more than 100 years and focusing it like a beam, particularly focusing this notion of political freedom and economic freedom, taxation without representation. But it wasn't just them. They were part of this larger wave, and that wave engulfed not only the elites, it 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 engulfed pretty much everyone. It was in the air. It was, in the, it was the 18th century equivalent 
of social media. It changed the conversation. It changed the way people thought of themselves in relation to other people. So while men with powdered wigs were wielding their quill pens, and while soldiers were squaring off at Yorktown and uh, Saratoga and here in Manhattan, in Brooklyn, uh, uh, Harlem Heights, and in the Battle of Brooklyn, other interactions were happening. Husbands and wives were altering the way they related to each other. The whole idea of classifying some human beings as the property of others was suddenly being questioned. It affected the way different classes of society related to each other. So that is how, subconsciously, I think, I came to the idea for this book. Why does it matter to you? I don't know that it does. But my presumption was that there's energy in the story of the American Revolution and the country's founding that hasn't been tapped, that despite all the thousands of books devoted to it, there are maybe new ways of understanding the founding, which may give us some insight into what we are today, and I think that is part of the job of history. That said, as I began my work, I insisted to myself that this book would not tell you what the American Revolution meant. There are thousands of books that will tell you what the American Revolution meant. Instead, it would be about lives. It would be an existential inquiry, a story, a nonfiction story. But which lives? There's been a uh, debate in revolutionary studies for decades now over the question of where the inspiration for the revolution came from. One uh, camp says it came from the elite from these men who listened, got ideas from Europe, and that inspired them, and they, and they wrote them down. The other camp says that, no, it came from the, from, uh, the grassroots. It came from grassroots, gra- uh, ground-level movements. I'm not an academic historian. I don't have a, a dog in that fight. Um, I wanted it, this book to encompass both. I thought this, precisely what I was talking about, this going back to the uh, 17th century meant that everybody was in one way or another involved and affected by this larger wave. So what I was approaching, was aiming at was an approach to the nation's founding that would re- reflect both who they were then and who we are now. So then I spent, I had this idea it would, that I would write about the revolution from the perspective of d- people from different walks of life. I then spent about two years auditioning people for parts in it. Uh, they, I, I knew that by definition they had to come from a variety of backgrounds. They also had to be well-documented lives. They had to be people, I was writing nonfiction, so they had to be people who wrote a lot of letters or who wrote memoirs or autobiographies. They had to fascinate me. And they had to fit together somehow, which is harder than you might think because people from very different walks of life, maybe especially then, did not interact with one another very much. But they had, I wanted them to be people who had something to do with one another because I wanted it to read as one narrative. So eventually they fell together, they fell into place. I began writing. I was maybe a third of the way through the book and I became uncomfortable with it. 
And so I stopped, and I just started reading it. And for a couple of months, I read and reread it. And uh, it eventually occurred to me, and this is my sixth book, you would think I had, would have learned this by now, but it occurred to me that a book has to be about something. Um, it can't just be about people going about their lives. Uh, and as I looked at it, once I had that you know, flash of insight, I realized that it was about something. It was about freedom. The most commonplace thing that a book about the American Revolution would likely be about, but not just political freedom. It would be about this broader stream coming out of the 17th century and affecting people in this, uh, in this, on this continent. So what I'm going to do is talk you through these six lives that I chose. I'll give you a little story about each of them. And what I, at some point in the process, I, it occurred to me that what I was doing was uh, mediating these lives through one consciousness, my own. And I thought it would be interesting for myself, if, if uh, nothing else, to get a sense of how they would be mediated visually through one consciousness. I talked to my sister, who happens to be an artist. Her name is Gina Dominique. She's not here tonight, but she lives in New York. And um, uh, she obliged me. She created six portraits, and what I, I thought it might be kind of fun, I'll show you each of the portraits as I talk about them. Four of them are based on portraits from their time. The other two, we don't have a portrait uh, uh, from life. So those were are sort of composites. And if I remember how to work this, I'll move to the first one. This is George Sackville. You know, I said uh, this, I'm mixing in the book a couple of people. I wanted to give the, the, a couple, some sense of the elite because they were, they were part of the picture as well as other levels of society. George Sackville, later Lord George Germain. Um, he is, uh, this is based on a portrait done in about 1764. He uh, was, uh, the Sackville family was an ancient family, uh, ancient aristocratic family. He, to give you an idea of his life and his upbringing, he was brought up in a house called Knoll House, K-N-O-L-E, in southeast England, which still exists, and it's uh, administered by the National Trust in England. You can visit it, and it is still, I believe, technically owned by the Sackville family. Um, Knoll House was uh, part of this fad uh, among the wealthy in England at the time. It was called a calendar house. Uh, it had 12 separate entrances, one for each month of the year. It had... 52 interior staircases, one for each week of the year. It had seven interior courtyards and, wait for it, 365 rooms. So this is where he ran around and played when he was a child. Um, he, uh, his father, Lionel Sackville, the Duke of Dorset, was a uh, diplomat. And he was, when he went off to Ireland to be the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland... He, young George went with him. And there, I think, he learned firsthand what it was like to be an Englishman administering an empire. Uh, the reason I like talking about his house is I, I kind of have the idea that he embodied it, that it became part of his, that, that its feudal um, 
essence, the, the sense of what England was in its empire, he took on and it became part of his personality. George and his father had very different personalities. His father, the, the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, whose job it was to administer this, uh, this protectorate, Ireland, this often unruly uh, area, land, was a mild man. Young George, from very early in life, was uh, domineering, combative, aggressive. He uh, served as his father's secretary while he was there, and he saw the Irish basically running circles around him. And uh, they were allowed a measure of self-rule, and as far as George uh, was concerned, they were getting away with murder. He eventually, in time, took over some of the tasks from his father. And in doing so, he got the administration there in a lot of hot water. Uh, And his father eventually resigned in disgrace. However, in England, there were people who thought that what he did was exactly what should be done. If you're running an empire, you shouldn't shilly-shally. You should get on with it, and you shouldn't let them uh, run around you. So he was lionized, and he began to rise. At the same time, he uh, became a military man, an officer, and he distinguished himself in battle. So he's rising politically and militarily, and in time, people start talking about him as a future prime minister. Then it all comes crashing down in 1759 in Europe, in the Seven Years' War at a place called Minden in what's now Germany, Uh, There was one of these great European battles going on, and um, he was leading the cavalry. He was the second in charge of this vast battle with tens of thousands of soldiers, and he was to await orders to attack. And this was at a crucial moment in the Seven Years' War when uh, a decisive victory by England would probably force France to, uh, to declare defeat. So he's... With the cavalry up on a hill, a rider comes up and orders, gives the order, you're, you're to charge now. He doesn't charge. A second rider comes up and says, you're supposed to charge. He doesn't charge. Finally, a third rider comes up and says, you have to charge, and then he charges. England did win the battle, but it was not this route that they had hoped for, and blame fell on him. He became the most hated man in England. He, was, uh, try- he insisted on a court-martial to clear himself. It had the exact opposite effect. He was almost executed for treason. His name was, was, uh, was uh, dragged through the mud in England. He lost all of his privileges. But being this indomitable figure, he slowly from that period began working his way back up the rungs of power. By 1772, he was given the job of undersecretary of state for the American colonies. Right at the time, obviously, when the American colonies were becoming a big deal, and when the war breaks out then, he's the one who has to administer it. He has to fight the colonies. And as he does so, both his supporters and his enemies acknowledge that he's doing it out of a sense of Redemption, needing redemption. His enemies in Parliament, the Whigs, who were his most uh, vociferous enemies, call him the coward of Minden, just to get his goat. So he's, as, he's proce- uh, as he's prosecuting the war, this is in his background. And so one thing that attracted me to him was, first of all, he's just this perfect, I mean, he's almost the caricature that the, the uh, Americans created 
of the English feudal backward uh, uh, monarchy and aristocracy while we are, you know, advancing the cause of liberty and freedom. And the other nice thing about focusing on the, the British, which often is not done in American uh, uh, histories of the war, is that that was one side, but it was only one side of what was going on. The Whigs were pretty much on the side of the Americans. They were saying, look, all of the rhetoric they're taking is ours. They're using our enlightenment against us. And we are, they're painting us as the bad guys. And in fact, historically speaking, we're on the wrong side of this. So you had that battle uh, being waged in, uh, in England, in parliament, in government, during the course of the war. All right, let me switch gears. This is one of the composite portraits. This is uh, Venture Smith, a slave who freed himself. This, uh, by the way, I, um, uh, the artist worked from... Uh, he, the uh, Africa historian Paul Lovejoy surmises, we don't know for sure, but he surmises that uh, in Africa, Venture Smith, where he was known as Brotier Furrow, was a member of the Fulani tribe. And uh, so the basis for this portrait, just as a little uh, tidbit of information, was a, an 18th century Fulani mask and then uh, the clothing of a New England farmer, which is where he spent his life. Um, when, you're doing, when you're researching, you want to get into the details, into the life of uh, an African, of, of a slave of the period. Uh, as I said before, you want texture, you want material. There's a category called slave narratives. And you think, okay, great, those are slave narratives. I'll just go through one of those and, and find one. Uh, as you go through them, it becomes uh, tricky because you notice a sort of sameness in them. And it turns out that they were, many of them were uh, 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 channeled by abolitionist leaders who were trying, you know, had this, this noble cause. They were trying to uh, compile a list of stories to win people over to the need for, for um, the abolition of slavery. But in doing so, they, uh, they, they put this kind of heavy, moralizing Christian tone on it, and they read, it's hard, kind of hard to, to get at the underlying story. One writer called this um, a black story in a white envelope. So um, it, it makes these slave narratives kind of problematic. One narrative, which is often classified with the slave narratives for obvious reasons, is the narrative of Venture Smith. It does immediately uh, is apparent that it was not processed by anyone, that it came from one person's life and one person's mouth. It turns out that he uh, dictated it when he was an old man in rural Connecticut. So he was uh, born and raised in West Africa in a, little, in a village called Dukandara. His narrative, he's, he devotes about a third of it to his life in Africa, which gives you a really rich sense of perspective. You see, what I'm trying to do with this book is, you know, okay, here's the, the, the aristocratic British trope. Here's the African trope. You're sort of putting these puzzle pieces together. And ultimately, then, you have this sense anyway a kaleidoscopic sense of what America was at the time and what the, uh, what the, what the revolution was all about. Um, so uh, he uh, is born in this, uh, what's called a ruga, a cattle camp, which is a, um, uh, uh, where they had uh, uh, cattle and they grazed animals. He was the child of a local prince. When he was about 10 years old, 
an army invaded, an African army invaded the village, and he was taken captive, but not before witnessing the torture and killing of his father, who refused to tell the the, uh, army where he kept his gold buried. This made a huge impression on him. He's taken with others to the coast of what is now Ghana, and there another army attacks the army that had taken him, and he's transferred to them. And at the town of Anomabo, there is, uh, there was, there was one of the towns where there were these slave forts. Europeans built the uh, castles, uh, fortresses to process slaves. And, uh, he was held there and it happened that the ship that was in harbor at this time, this is 1738, called the Charming Susanna, was, uh, from Newport, Rhode Island. So he was, he boarded it with 86 other, uh, slaves. And he lucked out in one respect. He was, the the ship was destined for Barbados, and uh, all the slaves were going to work in the sugar fields there, which was a uh, truly Hobbesian existence. You know, life was nasty, brutish, and short. But he was about 10 years old. He was strong. He was smart. The the, uh, uh, steward of the ship, a man named Robinson Mumford, had his eye on him, and he asked the captain if he could buy him for his own property. And he, he uh, at, at the time, in the 18th century, the word venture was used for your personal property that you, that you barter with. And uh, his venture was four pieces of calico cloth and a gallon of rum. So in a, because he gave his venture for this boy, he, named, he renamed him Venture, and henceforth that's what he was known as. So he avoids Barbados, is taken by ship to Newport, spends the time there uh, working in a well-to-do house in Newport, learning things like the the, the functioning of a New England household and and learning the English language. He then gets sold to a succession of, um, of different owners, he is, his teenage years are spent on Fisher Island in uh, Long Island Sound. Uh, then he go, moves to Stonington, Connecticut, uh, across the Sound and the coast. And as he grows, he's very strong, he's very smart, and he um, develops a... Uh, as, I'm going to take a step back. As I was doing this book, as I said, I, I was looking for people whose stories connected up. But then as I got further into it, I noted other kinds of connections. Uh, One of them was honor culture. The 18th century honor codes were remarkably similar across the world so that the honor code that he was raised with uh, in Africa was remarkably similar to the honor code of, for example, George Washington uh, in Tidewater, Virginia, a uh, tobacco planter's son. Part of the honor code told him, because they had slavery where he was in Africa, that whichever side you happened to be on, whether you were the owner or the slave, you, there was a proper way to behave. So there were things, So once he became a slave, he seems to have accepted there was a right way to do it. I'll be loyal, I'll be obedient, and I'm going to expect certain things from the person on the other side of this equation. So what he writes about in his narrative, in part, is how many times owners did not uphold that side of the bargain. He becomes bitter about that. So he then, then this is now, we're in the period where the American colonies 
white people. Uh, we have the Stamp Act. We have the Townsend duties. We have these, this uh, systematic sequence of events in which white Americans are um, becoming more and more disgruntled with England and are talking more and more about freedom. While that's happening, Venture decides he is going to start buying, work, saving money, and eventually buy himself out of slavery, which was a fairly rare thing to do. Uh, so eventually then, his, the last change of owners, he has enough stature that he actually interviews several prospective owners to figure out which one he wants to go with. And a man named Oliver Smith, who was a, well, a wealthy businessman in Stonington, agreed with him in advance that if he bought him, he would eventually give him the opportunity to buy himself out of slavery. So he goes, and he, he goes with uh, Oliver Smith. He has a wife and uh, children by this time, and uh, Oliver Smith allows him to buy himself and his uh, family out of slavery. He does this systematically. Everything about Venture Smith, and you get the real sense of this in his narrative, was he was a transactional figure. It was about money. He, when he talks about his daughter getting sick and he goes to the doctor, at, at the end of this little episode, he doesn't say, and thank God she got better. He says, the doctor visit cost me 40 pounds. Everything with him is about money. So um, he, when it comes to buying people out of slavery, he buys himself out first, then he buys his two sons, then later his wife and daughter. Why does he do it that way? Because he knows that his sons can work and raise money faster, and then they can get the wife and daughter out. So while, and what struck me is while all of this is going on, the American Revolution is, is coming to a head. So, and, and there were lots of people in the colonies, including people who were at George Washington's side, a man named John Lawrence, who was one of his aides, the, Mar the Marquis de Lafayette, who was another, who thought that they were fighting for freedom for everyone and that when they won it, they would free the slaves, and that would, that would really mean something, this new freedom. Venture seems not to have believed that, because he just steadfastly went about taking matters into his own hands. So he buys everyone out of slavery. He takes on his last owner's name, which may seem like a strange thing to do, but it was actually uh, um, practical. He was a very practical guy. And being a freed slave was a very dicey proposition. Slavery, at least, was an institution. Everybody knew what it was. Being a freed slave, you were in a no-man's land. Uh, settle, uh, cities all around the country passed laws forbidding them from settling, because for one thing, they said that if, you, if, you, if they become destitute, the town has to take them on. Um, so Venture then goes inland. He wants to avoid the war. He goes, he gets away from the coast where the war is more evident. He travels inland to rural Connecticut to a place called Haddam, and he begins buying land there. And that in itself is an unusual thing, but he ends up buying more than 100 acres of land, which is more than most white New Englanders at the time who were wealthy owned. It's a tricky thing to do, and it was a necessary thing because he's trying to make... It, his way. He's trying to make people um, take notice of him. Uh, and it's a, it's a doubly difficult thing to do because at that time, this is before mortgages were common, so you had to rely on your neighbors. So in these, uh, the land records of the town of Haddam, I would find his, um, time after time, his, uh, uh, a document 
in which, you know, Venture Smith, a free Negro, is buying this many acres of land, and there are two or three other names on the document, and these are neighbors of his who had agreed to put up money, so it was a kind of backcountry mortgage. They were kind of co-signing for the loan, which meant you were really insinuating yourself into the community. So, so Venture Smith does this throughout the uh, period of the Revolution and then into the early period of the American Republic, and he dies as a, uh, a successful landowner in that part of Connecticut. And not only that, he has this estate, and once, as he becomes more comfortable, he begins to bring other freed Africans onto his, uh, into, uh, onto his estate. And I make this uh, comparison at one point uh, between his estate and George Washington's estate of Mount Vernon, which had you visited those two, in, say, the 1890s, you would have seen a functioning estate, well-ordered, worked, worked by blacks, but the ones on uh, this New England estate of Venture Smith were, of course, freed blacks. Okay, I got to... This is the first time I'm giving this talk, so I, I have to uh, make sure that I'm uh, uh, not, uh, not going over my time here. All right, this portrait is uh, based on the Charles Wilson Peale portrait of 1772. This is George Washington at, about, at the age of 40. Washington was the last of the people who I settled on for my book. And I guess, you know, the very obviousness of him, I, I, didn't, want to, uh, I, I didn't want to choose him. But then uh, as soon as I did, and I'll tell you how, how long ago I was working on this book, I, I knew I wanted to have one founding father type represented in it. And I, for a while, thought, maybe I'll do Hamilton because he doesn't get enough attention. <laughs> so, um, but then I settled on Washington, because, and as soon as I did, he's the one that kind of connects them all because he's everywhere before the war, after the war, um, and he is the one who interacts with most all of these other figures. And then, you know, what I'm doing, I'm telling you now these stories, and by the way, in the book, I wove these all together. I'm kind of laying out each story kind of from beginning to end here, but um, they're woven together, and, and when I'm talking about Venture Smith or I'm talking about George, uh, Lord George Germain, you know, we're in this other place which you don't associate with the American Revolution. But when we're with Washington, this is familiar territory. So I'm hoping that as a reader moves through it, you have this, this uh, touchstone. Okay, I was talking about honor codes, and I was talking about um, parallels that come up uh, as you're doing research. Striking parallels I, I found between Washington and Venture Smith, to some extent between Washington and George Germain. Um, Washington was born in Tidewater, Virginia. His father was a moderately successful planter who had a lot of ambition, who had a lot of upward mobility. He, that's what he intended. He had sent his first two sons to England to be educated. Washington's mother... Uh, a lot has been written about her. She's kind of a backwoods, she comes through the records as kind of this backwoods figure, uh, sort of lower on the, in the, on the social level than, than the father. He was kind of marrying down, I think, because she had a lot of uh, property. She uh, had no teeth. She smoked a pipe. She didn't trust people. So uh, at about the same age that Venture watched his father die, George Washington's father died. 
So he's raised with this honor code, with these pretensions, this is going to be the kind of life that I will live, that of a Virginia planter, and I'll get this education in England. And then he's thwarted, because when his father dies, there's not enough money. His mother holds, keeps him very close to them. Um, so uh, he's stuck. He's, he has this honor code, and he has this. And you know, what, with Washington, I'm trying to find, you know, like he's famously enigmatic. Um, and this clearly was an event and a situation that uh, mightily influenced the person he became. He lucked out when his brother married into the Fairfax family, which were the largest landholders in Virginia. And um, he became the protege of George Fairfax, who was the, 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 the head of the family. And he seemed to see a lot of himself in the boy. And he took him under his wing. He tried to give him the first step in life that he himself had had, he tried to get him a commission to the British Navy, but Washington's mother wouldn't let him, oh, thank you, wouldn't let him uh, go. So um, does this mean, okay, okay, I can keep going, thank you. Um, uh, so he, uh, but, but uh, under Fairfax's tutelage, Washington uh, read, for example, the Roman writers. He read um, Caesar's Gallic Wars. He and Fairfax taught him to be to have a Roman visage, to have this, you know, frosty, like don't show the world what you're thinking. But it's fine to have bounding ambition, and I think that very much uh, uh, applied in Washington's case. Uh, you see him trying very hard in as he grows to adopt the manners and the, that go along with the honor and the, and the status. There's this uh, document, which you may be familiar with, the, the, the rules of civility. He got his hands on a hundred-year-old French etiquette manual, and at the age of 16, he copies out, I think it's 101 rules of civility, how to behave in society. He's just desperately trying to, uh, to become a member of society, and there are things like, when dining in public and eating a pitted fruit, do not spit the stone directly onto your plate, discreetly spit it into your hand. And, and when walking with a person of quality and conversing, you know, t stand a half step behind him and hold his shoulder and cock your head in interested uh, observation of what he's having to say. So he's like pain, painstakingly writing these out and, and, and you know, teaching himself how to become a gentleman. Uh, I, I, won't, uh, I won't go much further with Washington. I'll just say that he... Um, like um, Germain, he saw the military as a, a way to gain honor. He uh, was in the Virginia militia, and in the French and Indian War, which is the American theater of the Seven Years' War, he gets a commission at the age of 22 to go to the Forks of the Ohio, which was the, uh, the place uh, the French were, had settled uh, the, the Mississippi River Valley, the English were uh, in, along the coast, and as the French then began to move threateningly eastward, the English had to do something. So Washington was sent on this mission to basically warn the French to stay away from what was called the Forks of the Ohio, where Pittsburgh is now. Instead, he encountered this party of uh, 35 French Canadians uh, in western Pennsylvania and attacked them and, um, and massacred them. 
And this is the event that fr- France was looking for an excuse to uh, declare war on England. And this is the event that set off the war. So he really kind of disgraced himself. He acted beyond uh, his uh, assignment. And uh, one of these other little parallels, Washington's act set off the war that Germain's disgraceful act failed to end. Um, so this then becomes, and in both cases, though, they, they rebound from it and they build careers. And then eventually they become, they, they be, rise to the position where they are fighting this war against each other sort of across the ocean. All right, I'm moving on. If this looks familiar to you, this portrait, it is because the original is right behind where you're all sitting in the main hall here. It hangs in the New York Historical Society. Um, This is uh, a Seneca Indian named Kayetwake, who was called corn planter by the English. I I wanted to have the native, you know, it's, it's completely untrue to say the American Revolution had two sides. It had many sides. The, uh, needless to say, the Native Americans were a side, but they weren't just one side. There were many. There were, you had the, the six tribes that made up the Iroquois Confederacy, and then you had all these other tribes. Um, I wanted to represent that, uh, that perspective. Corn planter is a fascinating figure to me because you, you, everyone has this stereotypical notion of what the, uh, the proud, vicious warrior, Native American warrior was. And he was that, but he was the opposite of that as well. He was philosophical. He was a compromiser. He was a realist. He was a politician. Um, and there are enough, you know, it's always tricky in dealing with uh, Native Americans because all the records are processed through people who were not Native Americans. Uh, but there are enough records to give this rich picture of this man. Uh, to give you a couple examples, I think part of his ability to be nuanced uh, comes from the fact that his mother was a lineage matron, that was a, a woman of power in the Seneca tribe, uh, and they were a matrilineal people, so that meant something. His father was a Dutch American, a white man from Albany, New York, who was an Indian trader, kind of a ne'er-do-well who traveled through, and, and he was the result. And he, he, when he was an adult, he commented that growing up, other kids in the, ta- in the village made fun of him for the color of his skin because he was different from them. So he was you know, aware of this, uh, of being other. This carries all through his life. This father, he has this father, you know, again, this father theme, you know, Washington and uh, Venture Smith both lose their fathers early. He never really had his father on the scene, and it, and it bothered him all through his life. And at least two times, he makes a trek hundreds of miles to try to reckon with this man. He tracks him down, finds him, and the, and he, the father basically wants nothing to do with him. The second time, in the, he's in the middle of... Uh, Fighting a war outside of uh, fighting the, the a battle outside of Kenojahari in upstate New York, and uh, through the smoke of the fires because they're burning down these uh, people's village, he recognizes this old man and it's his father. And uh, he they they get ten miles down the trail and he stops and he turns around and he's yelling at him at this point saying, "Don't you recognize me? I'm your son. I'm a warrior." He just he so, so patently 
wants this father to acknowledge him and recognize him. So he's that kind of figure that, you know, you really sense this texture. And he then, so when the, when the war uh, breaks out, initially both sides want to keep the, the Iroquois Confederacy out of it because, for one thing, they're scared of them. Uh, after George Germain, after the British lose a whole army at Saratoga, George Germain, who has this need to win, calls in, tells his agents to uh, bring in the Iroquois on their side. And uh, so the result of that is a council at Oswego where the uh, Iroquois meet and Cornplanter gives this impassioned speech arguing that they stay out of it. He's overruled and um, because he understands majority rule, he fights along with them and becomes this vicious uh, warrior attacking American villages and settlements and forts. Then after the war, the British lose and therefore the Iroquois lose. The Iroquois appoint him to be their representative to deal with the Americans. So he didn't want this to begin with, but now he has to deal with the American leaders and say, look, what can we, how, how can we work this out? And uh, they, of course, don't want to hear of it. They, they basically say, you lost and we're, uh, history is, move, is rolling over you. He meets with George Washington twice. The second time, it's very poignant. Uh, this is at the end of Washington's pre- presidency. And they're being forced by that time to sell land. And he's trying to get something out of it. And he says to Washington, all right, if we sell this land, in the past we would sell land and we would just buy things and they'd be gone. But I've heard that you have these things called banks. Will you help me to put the money in a bank? If so, am I right in understanding that there's this thing called interest? And so you see him working, you know, please help me here, you know? So what, I, what appealed to me about him was that he is this... Um, is this a, a, a co- truly complex figure. You see the complexity of the natives alongside the complexity of both the, the Americans and the British. I think I got to move forward here. Abraham Yates, I'm going to have to be quicker on the last two. Um, I, I like Abraham Yates uh, because he gives a whole other perspective on the times and on the war and what was at stake. Going back to what I was talking about at the beginning, about the 16th century and this broad current of freedom uh, that the American Revolution really represents one part of. Uh, Yates was a a street-level fighter. He was uh, the ninth child of a blacksmith. He had to be apprenticed as a shoemaker. He also was half Dutch. He uh, grew up speaking Dutch. His mother was Dutch um, from Albany. And um, early on in life, he has a chip on his shoulder and he's against elites. And initially it is the elites, it is the, these powerful Dutch families, going back to the Dutch period, that control politics and the economy in Albany. Uh, he teaches himself the law He becomes the sheriff of Albany County in the 1750s at the time of the French and Indian War. He's then dealing with British soldiers uh, and abusing the people of Albany. So he begins writing uh, legal briefs against the British Army. Uh, So from that early, he's he's one of the first people to uh, call out the Americans to turn on the British. What appeals to me about him also is that, so he's worked during the war, he holds several different titles to offices in New York politics. And in the battle for New York, he is 
corresponding constantly with George Washington, sending, trying to round up soldiers and send them, uh, finding arms, dealing with loyalists. After the war, he stops and pivots because what he sees is the American elite, Washington and Madison and Hamilton and Adams, are simply, in his eyes, becoming a homegrown version of what they had just fought against. So he becomes this prominent anti-federalist voice as the, uh, the, the, the colonies or as the nation starts to move toward a constitution. He, he does not trust the idea of the constitution when he gets his hands on the, the document and as it's being passed around to be ratified, he's appalled by in particular the office of the presidency, which he says all the president has to do is get the Senate on his side, then he can stack the Supreme Court the way he wants and he can become a tyrant. Uh, uh, you know, you said they say history repeats. I think history sort of echoes, and Abraham Yates represents an echo that is that is, I think, echoing pretty loudly these days. Um, Margaret Moncrief Coglin is the second of these portraits that are not based on life because we don't have a portrait of her from life. Uh, the, the reason for the mask is partly that, and partly because she. Uh, later in life in London and Paris was a, a fixture at masked balls. Uh, she was the daughter of a um, uh, revolutionary, uh, of a British officer. Uh, she became uh, a, a loyalist uh, herself uh, as a teenager. She was a teenager during the war. She has uh, altercations with General Washington when she's a 14-year-old girl and he's a, a general. What... what um, struck me, what appealed to me about her is that it would be totally anachronistic to talk about women's freedom or women's, uh, uh, a women's rights movement at the time. But there was a cutting edge of it. And the cutting edge at that time was the idea of forced marriage. People, while the war was happening, were writing newspaper articles. There was a play going on in New York when she lived there uh, depicting the forced marriage as, uh, some, as a wrong. And she, that is exactly what happened to her. Her uh, father forced her to marry an abusive husband. She tried to rebel. Uh, she couldn't do it. And then she finally leaves this man and uh, then is forced to become, she, she wants independence and she, uh, there are only two paths open to her, being, being an actress or being a mistress of a wealthy man. So she be, ends up becoming kind of a serial mistress to uh, a number of wealthy men in London and in Paris. And so while, all, while the war is playing out and in the aftermath and of the early republic, um, she is taking this, everything that had happened affected her and, and set her off on this uh, uh, trajectory of her life. And I wanna, uh, before I uh, end, I just want to note that the few historians who've written about um, Margaret Moncrief Coughlin in the past assumed that she died in 1787. I was convinced that she did not, that she lived much longer than that. I had to find proof, and I found three letters written that she wrote after that. And the first one I found here at the New York Historical Society. Um, I could say much more about her, but um, I'll, as, I, as I go on with these talks, I'll get better at, uh, at managing my time. Okay, I just want to say at the end here that I started um, this project thinking that I was writing history, that these were issues that were settled long ago. In the past year, I came to feel that it is very relevant. It moved from history to a news story. The issues at stake back then are with us again. 
freedom of speech, of religion, of the press. We seem to have turned back the clock in terms of dealing with race and American identity. What I think we're seeing is evidence of the fact that the promise of freedom at the nation's founding was only partly fulfilled after the revolution. In a sense, all of American history has been an effort to address that failure. Once we are past this period, I hope one positive result will be a renaissance in education, in critical thinking, in a commitment to making our history a part of our present. The people who fought for a republic, for individual freedoms, were conscious of living in a tradition of unfolding freedom that stretched back more than a century. They were consciously engaged with that tradition. We have to be conscious of it as well. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I have, uh, uh, I've left a few minutes for questions, so let me see. Um, if, you had a, if you had to add a seventh or eighth subject to your book, what, who would you choose and why? Um, you know, well, it would certainly be a woman, because I wanted to have at least two women in this, and then with this you know, jigsaw puzzle that, that I uh, was struggling with, I ended up um, not doing that. Um, Phyllis Wheatley, um, I was, there, was, there were a number of women who's, uh, who, you know, who wrote diaries um, who were not well-known at all. Um, and I, I, I was attracted, and the reason I didn't choose one of them is they were very small worlds, and I couldn't find a way to, you know, to, to, to flesh out that world enough to, uh, um, to make it sort of fit at the same level with others. But I think if I had one more, I would have, used, I would have done one of those, because I would have liked to have that on-the-farm kind of uh, experience. Uh, what do you think was the civilian experience of the revolution in New York City? What happened to New York residents who could not evacuate? Yeah, New York became, and this, I focus on this when I talk about Margaret Moncrief, because her story in New York, she was a, um, uh, her, they lived in New York, she and her family. Uh, then the, uh, the Americans were in, in the early stages, were in control. The British, their initial strategy was, we have to get control of New York City and the Hudson Valley. Uh, so uh, sh- because of events, she is kind of stuck behind enemy lines in New York City, so in lower Manhattan, with the American officers, with Washington and the other officers. Her father is with the British Army on Staten Island as they are amassing forces. So um, through her, we get this sense of what New York was like as a civilian. And it was really two places. There was, because it had been, uh, there had been a lot of uh, suffering building up to this point. So there was this uh, a city of, of disease and despair. But right beside it, was this city of 20,000 or so uh, troops and officers. And the British officers created their own little universe of uh, where you could buy French furniture and, and the, you could go to the theater and you could uh, play billiards. And, uh, and, so, and that was, for a short time, that was um, Margaret's world. So New York in the time was those two things. Why did the colonies in present-day Canada remain loyal to Great Britain? Were they given the option to join the 13 colonies in revolting? The Americans very much wanted um, to, um, to win the Canadians over. And this was one of the things that George Germain, when he's running the show from England, was most afraid of, that, uh, that uh, sort of 
one disloyal colonial arena would uh, kind of that, that would infect the other one. So there was a, there was a whole Canadian theater in the war, which is uh, too much for me to go into here. Uh, but that was a big part of the fighting. I think I finished on time. Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.